Well, good morning, everyone. You know, I've gotten to do this a couple times now, but never with more than like seven people in the room, at least not at Westridge. So hopefully I won't make a total train wreck out of what's about to happen. But if I do, I just ask for a little grace for the new year. I'm really excited to be with you here today. Um, And as I've been thinking about what to talk about this week, uh, one subject kept coming to mind over and over again for me, and it was hope. See, I've known for a little over a month now that I was going to have the chance to speak to you on this last weekend of what has been a ridiculous year. And as I thought and prayed about what to talk about, I, I knew it had to be hope. And after the year we've all had, I'm sure... It's not a big surprise uh, that hope is something we all need a little more of. I was actually driving a couple friends to the airport the other day, and one of them happens to be a licensed counselor. So I asked her how important she thought hope was in her line of work. And after taking a moment to think about it, she told me that hope is probably the most important thing in what she does, and that the people who are hardest to help are people who don't have any hope. And it turns out the Bible has quite a bit to say about hope, too. We're going to take a look at one particular passage I think might be especially helpful uh, for that subject. So, that passage is 1 Peter 1, 3-9, and if you've got Bibles or Bible apps handy, I'd encourage you to open them up to that spot and read along with us. But while you're getting there, a couple points of context that might be helpful. Number one, 1 Peter is a letter written by Peter to Christians in modern-day Turkey who were suffering due to circumstances outside their control. And after the year we've all had, I don't think any of us are strangers to that concept. Number two, these Christians are experiencing some form of persecution for their faith. It's possible that some of them have lost everything, including their homes. And number three, this letter is meant to be an encouragement to those suffering Christians who have lost everything. And while our situation may not be quite as dire as theirs, I think it'll be an encouragement to us as well. So with that context in mind, here's what Peter says in the first part of our passage for today. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So after making some introductions in the first two verses of this book, Peter launches right in, to this joy-filled expression of praise, setting the tone for pretty much the entire rest of what follows. It's as if he was just so overjoyed with what he was telling them that it just all flowed out in a constant stream. But what is it that he's so thrilled about anyway? It's this new birth that he says God has given us in his great mercy. Now, Peter's talking about some pretty deep truths here, deeper than we really have time to get into fully, but I'm going to do my best to unpack at least some of it for us, because the implications for our lives are pretty enormous. So let's start with the word mercy. Now, if you've heard me speak before, you know I'm a little bit of a nerd about words. This is one that I really loved. You ever have one of those moments where your words simply were not adequate to express something you wanted to express? 
Like you got a gift for Christmas that was just so heartfelt and amazing, you couldn't even tell the other person how heartfelt and amazing you felt their gift was. I think that's a little bit of what's happening here with this word mercy. The Greek word behind our English translation of mercy is eleos, and it means a lot more than just mercy. It's the same word used in the parable of the Good Samaritan to sum up the entirety of what the Good Samaritan did for the wounded man on the side of the road. More than that, it's also a word used to translate a Hebrew word from the Old Testament with an even richer meaning. That word is chesed, fun Hebrew words. Chesed is one of my favorite words in the Old Testament, mostly because of what it means, but also because it's just fun to say. Chesed. We don't have words in English where you get to go before you say them. Now, if you, it's a word that tells of God's faithful and compassionate and incomprehensible love toward his people. And if you happen to grow up in a faith tradition that ever used the King James Version of the Bible, you might recognize it by its unique translation there as loving kindness. More modern translations often render it as something along the lines of steadfast love. So when Peter, a Greek-speaking Jew, uses the word eleos, he doesn't just mean great mercy. He means that God, in his boundless and abundantly compassionate steadfast love and kindness toward us has given us this thing called a new birth. And a new birth is another densely packed yet beautiful concept. It's a little bit of a throwback to something Jesus himself said in the third chapter of John's gospel. But here it gets at the idea that we've been given a fresh start, a completely new sort of life that begins the moment that we encounter and embrace Jesus for ourselves. And Peter here tells us that this new birth of ours means, among other things, that we're born into a living hope and an imperishable inheritance. The inheritance, he says, is something for the future, something glorious to look forward to. And Peter tells us that inheritance is being kept safe for us in heaven. He drives the point home even further by reminding us that we, ourselves, through faith, are shielded by God's power even now. This is another nerdy word thing, so just bear with me. It's the last one, I promise. But the word behind the translation for shielded here is actually a military term. It means that God guards us like a night watchman, a sentry, a soldier, who would gladly give his life to protect those under his guard. So I know I've thrown a lot at you here, especially with the maybe boring word stuff. So let's take a quick step back and recap the main points I think Peter's getting at. Number one, God has given us a new birth. And that new birth is into both a living hope and an inheritance. But if the inheritance is for later, the living hope is for now. Hope is like oxygen to the human soul. A lot like the air we breathe, we tend to take it for granted, but it has a profound effect on our overall health and well-being. Without it, life can feel rather suffocating. But sometimes we don't even realize that we're suffocating. I have an aunt who is an ER doctor, and she was able to just get her vaccination uh, a couple weeks ago, so she joined us for Christmas. It's the first time we've seen her in months. And inevitably, the dinner table conversation turned to COVID and its effects. And she told us that one of the most puzzling things she sees in people hospitalized with the disease is how their damaged lungs can sometimes cause dangerously low oxygen levels in their blood but their brains don't even recognize it's happening. They slowly suffocate 
without even realizing it. And that's a lot like what life with hope is like. Our souls slowly suffocate. And sometimes we don't even realize that it's happening. And I recognize, though, that even as I say that, some of you listening right now might be keenly aware of hope's absence in your life. Despair is defined as the complete loss or absence of hope, and it's a powerful thing. It's in moments of despair that we're more likely to turn to self-destructive behaviors like drug abuse, excessive drinking, self-harm, even suicide. And medically speaking, despair is often listed as a symptom of depression, but I wonder if sometimes it might actually be the cause. After all, who of us wouldn't be depressed if we had no hope at all? And if that's you right now, as you listen to this, I urge you to talk to someone you can trust about it. The worst thing that you can do when struggling with depression or despair is to suffer through it alone. And we all need a little help sometimes to find hope when we can't seem to see it for ourselves. With that said, I think even more common than a lack of hope is misplaced hope. We're shaped by what we hope in. For example, if we put all of our hope in wealth, money, finances, it's pretty easy to become kind of greedy. If we put our hope in finding a fulfilling romantic relationship but end up single, we might end up deeply discouraged. Or if we put our hope in sports teams like the Chicago Bears, we might just be consistently disappointed. Hope is a weighty thing, though. And most of the things we tend to put our hope in aren't actually big enough to bear that weight. None of the things we've just listed are bad things, except maybe the bears. They just aren't worthy of our hope. And even putting our hope in something like a vaccine will only yield temporary results because when the pandemic is finally over, where does that leave us? So what does Peter mean when he talks about our being born into a living hope? And what makes this hope living hope anyway? Well, we just celebrated Christmas the day our hope was born into the world. Because Jesus lived and suffered and died on our behalf, we can be freed from the destructive patterns of sin in our lives. And because he was resurrected, we can have a hope that is stronger than death itself. Hope that we too can experience a new sort of life on the other side of death, a life marked by redemption and restoration, free from sin and brokenness and despair. Our hope is alive because our Savior is alive. But imagine for a second what it must have been like for his followers the day before Jesus was resurrected. They had put all of their hope in this man only to watch him get snuffed out by the Roman government. And now it seemed to them like it had all been for nothing. Despair probably set in pretty quickly like a heavy fog around them. And they had so given up on hope that when they found the empty tomb the next morning, their first thought was that someone had stolen Jesus' body. But when they encountered and embraced their resurrected Lord, they found hope on the other side of that death and despair was all the more powerfully alive. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that we who follow Jesus are a people called to hope. And he also says that that hope is directly tied to knowing Jesus. So let's pick back up in our passage for today at verse 6. Here's what Peter goes on to say. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. 
These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Remember earlier when Peter said that we're shielded by God's power? Well, that doesn't mean that we're shielded from suffering, at least not on this side of eternity. Even Jesus himself was not spared from suffering, but thankfully for us, hope is a thing born out of suffering. In Romans 5, 3 through 4, it tells us that we who follow Jesus have reason to glory in our sufferings. Because it says that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. So it draws a direct line from suffering to hope. And recently, I've gotten to see the truth of that statement up close and personal. Last year, just before the holidays, my wife went through an experience that resulted in some deep and prolonged grief and suffering for both of us. And as we've journeyed through that suffering together, there have been times where it was hard to find any hope that the pain would ever lessen or the brokenness would ever really be mended. And I'm still not entirely sure they ever will, but I'm no longer convinced that's actually a bad thing. We recently celebrated my 26th birthday with a handful of close friends, and our friend group has a tradition of speaking words of affirmation and encouragement to whoever's birthday it is. So I was deeply grateful for everything that was said to me as they went person by person, but one comment hit a little differently this time. There was one friend in particular who said something to the effect of, you're such a hope-filled person. I always feel more hopeful when I talk to you. And I don't think that would have been true of me a year ago. And I didn't even recognize that it was true of me now, yet somehow God, in his abundant mercy and goodness, has shaped in me a hope through this year of suffering as I walked with Jesus, however falteringly I did. And the hope that he's shaped in me is apparently so vibrant and alive that it has actually begun to bless some of the people that I care most about. And I'm a little reluctant to use myself as an example, but I know that I can't actually take the credit for any of it. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, he lost his wife to cancer later on in his life. Theirs was a multi-year journey that began with a death sentence because of the cancer severity, but then progressed through an apparently miraculous healing and still tragically ended in death a couple short years later when the cancer returned. While he was processing through that tragic loss, Lewis wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And in it, he made this observation that has always stuck with me. He says, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize that fact was to knock it down. When suffering and trials inevitably knock down our houses of cards, God is able to build something far better in their place, if only we let him. 
And through it all, even though we've never seen Jesus with our own eyes, we can grow in our love for him. And even though we'll probably never see his face in this life, our belief and hope in him can still fill us with this inexpressible and glorious joy that Peter's talking about. We've probably all suffered this year in one way or another, and some of us more so than others. But even in the worst of our suffering, there is still hope. This living hope that we're born into is a hope that cannot be taken away from us, even though we might lose sight of it at times. It's a hope that comes from knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has defeated both sin and death. It's a hope that comes from knowing that just as he was raised from the dead, we who have died to ourselves and been made alive to him can experience the first fruits of resurrection life even now on this earth. It's a hope that comes from knowing that he will come again. And when he does, he'll put a final end to all sickness and injustice and death. Our hope is found in the truth that whenever our time comes, we will finally experience the deep and abiding sense of belonging we've longed for all our lives, but only ever tasted in the briefest and most fleeting of moments. That we have a home beyond this country, a new family and a new story to be a part of, and a father who loves us more than we could ever possibly imagine. Our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. And as we wrap up this piece of the service, I want to do something a little different. There's a practice which has been a tradition of churches since their very beginning in New Testament times. And it seems to me kind of a fitting way to end the last Sunday message of this ridiculous year. It's called the benediction. And it simply involves the speaking of a blessing over someone. So if you're comfortable, I ask that you just hold out your hands like this wherever you are, whether you're here with us or at home watching. And receive the words of Romans 15, 13. And then we'll pray. Friends and family of Westridge, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for loving us the way that you do. Thank you for giving us this new birth into a living hope through the resurrection. May we as a church, community, and family become more and more a people marked by hope in this coming year because our world desperately needs the hope we found in you. Amen.